and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And on today's 48th episode of the National Treasure Hunt podcast, we are getting back to our roots. This is one of what we call our classic deep dive episodes, where we pick a topic of great importance to the National Treasure franchise, and we dissect it more than you probably ever wanted to know. And so the topic of today's conversation is actually U.S. currency. So Emily, how much do you think about U.S. currency in your day-to-day life? Uh, I'd say like 15, zero to 15 percent of the time. Wow. I don't use, I don't use money. You don't use money. Um, no, I no. use credit. I use my credit and my debit cards. So it's all like ethereal money to me. It's not right. like physical. It's fake. It's all fake. Great. Well, um, as you know, National Treasure uses money, but they also use credit cards. I mean, we all know Ben's infamous credit card slip in the National Archives gift shop, but we're not talking about credit cards today. We're talking about U.S. paper currency. Why? Because it makes a symbolic appearance multiple times throughout both films in this franchise. And so we thought it would be really fun to learn a little bit more about the history of U.S. currency and, as always, unearth some perhaps surprising facts about currency and how it could relate to national treasure in ways beyond what we see on screen. So I'm looking forward to that. I have spent the last uh, minute or so trying to come up with a song that refers to money in the form of paper. Mm -hmm. And this is partly due to my lack of popular music. But I isn't there one that's like bills, 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 bills or something like that? I don't know. That's the only one I could think of. So I really feel like I'm failing as like a musical correspondent, but it's okay. Yeah, you could do better. So um, it's a good thing there will be an opportunity for us to potentially do a 2.0 episode related to this one in the future. So you have a little bit of time to get your musical pop pop musical prowess up. Okay, cool. I'll work on it. Yeah. So of course, though, before we jump right into our big conversation of the day, we have to begin with our customary screams from Parkington Lane. If you are unfamiliar, for the uninitiated, our screams from Parkington Lane are an opportunity for Emily and myself to acknowledge just how much National Treasure has taken over our daily lives since starting National Treasure Hunt. So we like to think that we have fallen, much like Shaw, deep into the pit beneath Parkington Lane, and we stand at the bottom next to his corpse, screaming into the void. And hopefully, um, yeah, I don't know. Not inhaling, because he's going (laughs) to smell bad. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I didn't. Yeah, being being down here has its pros and cons, you know? So anyway, uh, <laughs> Emily, do you have a scream to share this week? My, oh my. Um, I do. So. <laughs> the descriptions the descriptions just get, keep getting more colorful. As our listeners may or may not know, I um, closely follow author, uh, podcaster, wonderful human, uh, John Green on twitter he has a lot of youtube videos he has a podcast with his brother uh which we talked about before a little bit on the podcast called dear hank and john um so i was in a particularly kind of like down 
spell down a couple days. And as I like to do when that happens, I go on YouTube and I find some old John Green videos. And uh, there happened to be a series that he did about a year or so ago where he decided to play Fortnite, the online game, as a pacifist. So I don't know how familiar you are, Aubrey, with Fortnite, but I, the idea, I believe, is to kill everyone else <laughs> until you are the last one remaining. Um, and his strategy was to go and do no harm to anyone and see how far he could get in the game. Um, so, you know, while he's playing these videos, he is obviously narrating kind of what's happening, uh, but he's also talking about some life stuff, which is why I like to listen. And he happened to uh, be on one of his classic quests for a chest, uh, which in the game apparently contains like some medicine, possibly a rifle uh, or some kind of gun or something. I don't know. It has stuff in it that's important. And um, one of the times he was looking for one of these chests and he referred to it as uh, he was basically Fortnite treasure hunting. And that immediately to me just was like, what if you put national treasure into Fortnite? I mean, I don't know a ton about Fortnite, but I know it is slash was very popular. So that could really only help our cause for National Treasure 3. I think so. Anyway, Aubrey, uh, what, what, do you, what do you have going on down in this uh, smelly place? <laughs> in this pit that reeks of Shaw's decomposing body? Um, mm -hmm. Well, I have like the purest form of a scream this week. And it comes from the fact that, as people will soon discover i think um i was sort of in charge of this particular episode and doing our prep work for it um and so i spent many hours last sunday night um doing some research and putting together an outline um on my computer and then i kid you not um not three or four hours later i'm on my phone on i think it was instagram at the time and it's very clear to me, based on this this moment, that my phone now knows that I'm in the Parkington Lane pit because I'm just scrolling through Instagram, and you know how it gives you like suggested reels to look at. Mm -hmm. There was a reel by this guy, and I wish I had written down his username so I could give him a shout out. Um, but I get a reel that pops up, and it's this guy doing this um, almost like a conspiracy theory deep dive into the United States quarter, like the 25 cent coin. And it was all about how George Washington is shirtless on the quarter. And the guy literally goes, what is this? A founding father thirst trap? And <laughs> <laughs> he goes through and shows you each of the coins. And indeed, I'd never noticed this before. Every other found, every other, you know, American figure on American coins either has a collar or it's cut off really close to their chin so like you don't have the opportunity to realize whether they're wearing clothing um but it was it was fascinating i did not seek this out it is a fun fact that now you all can can investigate yourself by opening up your wallet if you still happen to carry real money as emily would call it and um yeah instagram knows emily so there's really nothing left in my life that is national treasure free uh there is not 
That is uh deep cut. Have to go look at some quarters now. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, <laughs> I don't love it. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, and if you too want to look at a quarter and let us know your thoughts on it, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. You can also go ahead and check us out on our website, nthuntpodcast.com. And there we have links to our social media pages, the podcast itself, as well as some additional projects that we are working on, including our newly launched tour, as well as our forthcoming book. Go ahead and check us out there uh, and let us know if you have any thoughts. Yes, indeed. We always love hearing from you genuinely. So please do contact us. Anyway, I think it's time for us to dive right into um, U.S. currency, much like this intrepid uh, U.S. quarter investigator, if you will, on Instagram. I hope he finds this episode. Um, And what we're going to do today is we're going to start with a very brief history of U.S. currency, really focusing on interesting points that will feel reminiscent of national treasure. So we're not going through like every decade or anything like that. We're really just going through instances that call on important figures from national treasure, important events from national treasure, or topics that uh, we have been very vocal about here on the show that we think could pop into national treasure three. After that, we will hone in on the two paper bills that make recurring appearances in the National Treasure franchise, the $1 bill and the $100 bill. And then we'll go through the rest of the bills and how one could connect them to National Treasure if they were feeling particularly creative. So hopefully this will be fun. Um, Hopefully we'll all learn something. And hopefully we'll all also get to laugh along with Emily as we quiz her on her knowledge or lack thereof of U.S. currency. Sound good, Em? It's not great, everyone. (laughs) Which is why we're all in for a treat. So before we actually get into the meat of this conversation, I do want to start by saying most of the information that we'll be talking about today, you can find and even learn more about on uscurrency.gov, which is part of the U.S. Currency Education Program, which is an amazing program, which has all kinds of information, everything you might want to know about the history, the creation, the um, circulation of money, and, and really how that works. And just for clarity, another point that I want to make right off the bat um, is what we're going to be calling money throughout this episode, because I don't know about you, Em, I didn't know there were so many different forms of money that have happened throughout our country's relatively short history. Did you know that there's been like multiple types of banknotes? <laughs> nope. Zero idea. <laughs> okay. So for clarity, federal reserve notes are the current form of U.S. currency printed by the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing. That started in 1914. So really just over a hundred years ago. Prior to 1914, different forms of currency existed, um, and we're going to be talking a lot about those initial forms of currency. So whenever you hear me talking about a bill that's not specifically called a Federal Reserve note, that's what we're talking about. Um, And it's important to recognize here that 
there were times in our country's history where pretty much banks in any given location, so think California versus New Jersey, they were issuing different currency because there was no centralization. So um, there's a lot of, this is something that we're really just going to be scratching the surface on today. It seems highly problematic. <laughs> I mean, we're a country of hopefully progress and hopefully the way we do money now is in some ways seen as progress compared to that early point. Um, also, for the record, we are going to be focusing on paper bills today because they are the type of currency directly relevant to national treasure. But if you like this episode, let us know because we'd be happy to do a follow-up on coins, um, which I think, based on what I preliminarily saw online, could be equally interesting. So, Emily, do you have any questions before we start off? Um, no, I'm just really excited to hear what you found. You seem like, not that you don't normally seem genuinely excited, but you seem like extra excited today. So I'm, I'm really pumped to hear what we have and I'm ready to embarrass myself. Oh, music to my ears, Emily. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to call this one of our USS Intrepid episodes, if you will. So this is Folks from the past, from our past seasons, will, will recall that we did a deep dive on the USS Intrepid, and we admitted to being a little skeptical about how interesting that episode was going to be, and then it ended up, ended up being, like, truly fascinating. So, hopefully this follows suit. Okay, so let's start out with this little bit of history. That's what we do with National Treasure, right? We love the history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, our history of U.S. currency we're going to focus on time points here that are directly national treasure relevant. All right. So we're going to start with the year 1690. Does that year ring any bells for you, Emily? Nope. In case our listeners don't know, I am not good with dates. <laughs> but that's okay. The, the big point here is 1690 is substantially before our, let's call it the Declaration of Independence time period, shall we? So in 1690, we had colonial notes. So this is really the time at which paper currency in the United States really got its start. Uh, it was initially issued by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and its primary purpose was to fund military endeavors. Now, Massachusetts wasn't the only colony, right? Right. So other colonies quickly started issuing their own paper notes. So this, Emily, is sort of our first instance of different locations developing their own forms of money. It was really right off the bat, which isn't surprising, though, right? Because there was very little centralization at the time. We were still colonies under British rule. Yeah, it just it stresses me out, man. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well, here's when things start getting interesting. About 40 years later, in 1729, our boy Benjamin Franklin. I Yes, we love Ben Franklin here on the pod. Ben Franklin, in 1729, actually publishes some written work about how important he felt paper currency actually was. And so he started, remember, he did printing. He was a printer. We did a whole episode on him in the past. He started printing money for the Pennsylvania legislature two years later in 1731. And throughout his lifetime, he would end up printing paper currency for Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. So he was like a pretty, pretty important guy in this money business. 
1739 now is where things get, if you're me, I think totally fascinating. At this time, Ben Franklin began to really ponder about the challenges posed by counterfeiting, right? So this is the problem perpetually existing in, I guess you could say, currency even today. Like, it's always a threat, right, that you can counterfeit money. And and every new iteration of a bill nowadays has more security features to try to prevent it. Well, Mm -hmm. Ben Franklin was already thinking about this in 1739. He was using his Philadelphia, you know, printing business to basically print his colonial notes with patterns of leaves on them like yeah leaves from like a tree like leaves what yes because he he realized how it would make them so much more unique and harder to replicate that's so cool isn't it i smart it's brilliant i mean he's he's given a lot of credit for a lot of things in history this is one thing i never heard before and i'm so glad that i know it now (laughs) also on the quick point of counterfeiting this is total sidebar um i was definitely led to believe growing up through like watching shows like scooby-doo and such that counterfeiting was way more common than i think it is i mean it feels common enough because like so occasionally you'll give someone like a larger denomination of bill and they'll like hold it up to the light and like put like a check mark on it and stuff and for sure, like they check for it, but have you ever seen it? Seen the the bill not pass the marker test? <laughs> no, but I don't go around carrying counterfeit money that you know of. True. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so back to back to the topic at hand. Now, fast forward to 1775. Okay, this is real close to Declaration Era here. At this time, we have what's called continental currency. And this is actually really fascinating in a way that makes perfect sense. Around the time of the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress is basically churning out paper currency to finance their war effort. Now, this currency is just losing its value pretty quickly because there's really no solid backing for it. And on top of it, we have more counterfeiting to, to worry about. And so, like, think about it. If there, people are always like, oh, you just can't print money. You just can't print money, right? Because there has to be a system of, like, people have to buy into the fact that money is worth something. So there's a little bit of that going on here. But there's also the fact that there's a war going on that it's really unclear if the colonies are going to win. And just a lot of a lot of bad mojo here on the money front. Yeah, I mean, it, ma- it makes it, I guess, like, less likely that you're going to support this kind of or that you're going to trust in this kind of currency if you know you could lose and be back to using british Mm -hmm. currency for some reason Mm -hmm. exactly so that's sort of national treasure one era we're going to jump to national treasure two era here with 1861 um which is the beginning of the greenbacks era so people might have heard of uh paper money being called greenbacks it does uh, refer to the green ink on on the bills in the beginning it was only um really on on one side of the bill hence greenback Mm. um but greenbacks were initially issued uh to finance the civil war in this case and this is when congress tells the u.s department of the treasury to start issuing 
demand notes that are non-interest bearing. These are the greenbacks. Um, why am I bringing this up? Well, number one, National Treasure Two era with the Civil War. But number two, fun fact, all U.S. currency that has been issued since the year 1861 is technically still valid to this day at its face value. So if you just happen to have American currency from 1863, let's say, you could totally like take that into, I don't know, where do you shop ever? Like take that into Wawa, take that into CVS, what have you, and use it at the desk in theory. What? Yeah. Well, if you did have that money, I would not advise you to spend it. I would probably advise you to hold on to it because probably from a collector's perspective, worth more than that. Yeah. And I almost wish we had my dad as a guest on this episode because he is extremely passionate about collecting old money. Oh. Yeah. He knows a lot about it. Um, okay. Moving right along. I included the next two points mostly because a lot of people don't know this, and I think it's very interesting. In 1918, the Federal Reserve Board issues $1,000 notes. Mm -hmm. So these are single bills that are worth $1,000. They happen to have Alexander Hamilton's portrait on it. Um, yeah, that's pretty significant. The You've probably never heard of it because the bill was discontinued in 1969. I feel like 51 years isn't enough of a test run <laughs> for a bill that large. Because, like, how many people are going to be spending a bill that large? Well, like, that's probably why they figured they didn't need it. Because not a lot of people were. Well, if you think that's too large, Emily, where do you get a load of this? Also in 1918, the Federal Reserve Board issues $10,000 notes. That seems excessive. So this had a specific purpose. This was much more for large value transfers, like sending money between banks, really not for public circulation, you know? So was this, so then this must have still been when like all of the, all of the money that people like had in a bank was represented by like physical money. I mean, yeah. If, if we're talking things that are discontinued before 1970, I think that's pretty fair to say. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we missed out on a lot clearly by being born in the 1990s. Okay. Almost done here on the history part. One other thing I wanted to flag, because it's a little bit nearer to today, and I think it's just pretty interesting, is what happens to paper money in the United States when it's no longer fit for circulation? Do you have any idea, Emily? No. I've never thought about it. Yeah, because, you know, we don't think about trashing money because it's, like, illegal to right. do that. <laughs> You can't destroy money. So um, it turns out that the 12 Federal Reserve banks that exist around the country, they can repurpose banknotes once they are deemed no longer fit to circulate. And so to repurpose the bills, they can like shred the money in a way that is legal and reuse it for purposes that range from insulation for houses to compost for fertilizer. It's it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of different uses. I will 
make a note that before these different recycling possibilities existed, the money used to be incinerated. It used to be burned. So this is obviously way more sustainable and environmentally friendly. Um, I'll give another cool example here. Apparently, the Federal Reserve Bank located in San Francisco, they have a partnership with a power plant so that they will actually um, use clean burning technologies to burn the out-of-circulation bills to provide electricity for homes in San Francisco. Oh, that's so cool. Very cool. And I'm very happy to say that by the year 2020, the rate of recycling the bills instead of just flat out incinerating them for no purpose was like super high. So everyone can feel a little bit good about that. I definitely feel better. I think about that situation. Yeah, fun facts, right? I mean, it's not super national treasure relevant, but we like to know. We like to know good things. We could all use a pick me up here and there. So that was your brief national treasure oriented history of money. Okay. We need to get into what we're all really here for, which is a deep dive into the different paper bills that exist within U.S. currency. And the first, before we, you know, really get into this, Emily, I'm curious, like if you were to open your wallet right now, are there any paper bills in it or do you literally just have your like credit cards and your and your debit cards so i think right now mm -hmm. i have a ziploc bag in my wallet mm -hmm. that contains like my covid vaccination card along with some other random stuff and there might be like a five dollar bill in there Right, like in case, just in case you have to make any sudden dives into the Hudson River or something, we need it to be in like a plastic baggie. <laughs> no, it was because when I travel, uh, like on airplanes and stuff, I usually pack my purse and I keep all of my like immediate purse belongings in a little Ziploc bag that I put in the front of my carry-on. Uh -huh. And the, the last time I flew was probably, like, four or five months ago. But it, it's still <laughs> left over from that. Well, I don't know the last time, really, that you were in an airport, but pretty much nothing costs less than $5. So I don't know really what that $5 bill is going to do for you. But <laughs> the good news is here, we're going to start with the even smaller denomination with our conversation today, which is the $1 bill. Okay. Emily, do you remember why the $1 bill is actually directly relevant to national treasure? Yeah, I, I'm sorry to say, probably unsurprisingly, I, I don't know. Which is funny because you really like the money symbolism. Like you're the one of the two of us that finds the money recurring theme really interesting here. Oh, I do. I think it's super interesting when I see it in the films. Every time I just you don't watch. remember the the denomination <laughs> y'all we are witnessing what is probably a modern miracle emily is 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 really a gift to humanity every time she watches something it's like it's the first time what joy that must bring <laughs> it's, it's great okay so at the very beginning of the first national treasure movie of course we have ben's grandfather showing ben a young ben the all-seeing eye on the back of the u.s one dollar bill 
Uh, later on in that same movie, we have Riley paying the small child outside of the Franklin Institute in $1 bills so that the kid can go get the translations of the cipher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in the second film, we see Patrick using a crumpled $1 bill to find the flow of water in Cibola so that they can actually escape before they drown. Yes. R.I.P. Mitch. Okay, so I remember all of these these moments, to be clear. Okay, I great. just didn't remember that it was specifically the $1 bill. Well, maybe you can also remind us of um, something that Oren told us that I know you really, really liked um, related to $1 bills in the real world when it came to promoting the first National Treasure film. Yeah, so Oren uh, told us this really cool story that, as I've already said, I really enjoy. Um, that he uh, basically ran, um, um, he came up with a marketing campaign uh, for for the first movie where he put, I think, Aubrey, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like stickers, specifically. Stickers or stamps, yeah. Yeah, on the $1 bill um, that that was somehow uh, related to uh, the film itself. And his idea was then to put this these $1 bills into circulation and to kind of allow them to market the film themselves. And I think an unintended kind of result of this was that uh, at the lot where he worked, he actually went across the street to a Starbucks and he uh, actually received as change one of the $1 bills that had the sticker or stamp on it from the marketing campaign. Yeah, it's a, that's a good story. It's something, it seems like money just follows follows this franchise around, whether it's in the movie, in marketing the movie, or all the money that the movie rakes in. Um, so <laughs> make National Treasure 3. Um, okay, so <laughs> just to make sure we're all on the same page here, I know that we actually have a substantial number of listeners from outside of the United States. So to get us all on the same page, I thought we could make sure that we all know what a $1 bill looks like. So it's Emily quiz time. This should be an easy one. Who is on the front of the $1 bill, Emily? George Washington. That is correct. Do, yes. you, do you know what is on the back? I did just say it like two minutes ago. <laughs> the pyramid. Yeah. So on the back, um, the, the all seeing eye above the unfinished pyramid is part of the great seal of the United States. So both sides of the great seal are on the back. We'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. So it turns out something that really blew my mind when researching this episode is that the federal reserve note, $1 bill. So what we have and use today only started existing in 1963. So like, yeah, before that, there were other forms of what were effectively $1 bills, but they weren't like, they weren't our $1 bills. So in 1963, the $1 bill we know and love replaced what were called silver certificates. And since its creation, this bill's creation in 1963, its design has never been changed, which is pretty interesting because every other bill has. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's pretty common. Exactly. So let's talk quickly about the origins or the concept of $1 units of paper currency. In America, this actually started as a concept in 1862. At the time, that was called a legal tender note or a United States note. 
and subsequently was redesigned and renamed, if you will, many times. One of the most interesting versions, in my personal opinion, 1886, taking it back, we had a version that had Martha Washington on it. We, but we love Martha Washington. We love recognition for important female figures i mean oh yes that too hashtag feminism hashtag blessed um (laughs) but we also from our tours of mount vernon i think have really come to come to uh feel strongly for martha washington absolutely so martha washington being on what at the time was a one dollar silver certificate made her the first woman to ever appear on u.s currency so we love that breaking the glass ceiling all the way back in 1886. Don't know what happened since then, but here we are. Um, <laughs> moving right along. Fun fact here, something that I thought would be really interesting to know as we go through this episode, specifically with the National Treasure relevant um, bills. How common are bills? You know, how right. much of them, how many of them exist? So it turns out that in 2017, there were 12.1 billion dollars worth of US $1 bills in circulation and the estimated lifespan of a US $1 bill. Getting back to the idea of recycling the currency once it's no longer usable, the estimated lifespan of a US $1 bill is only 5.8 years. And this uh, perhaps unsurprisingly is like one of the shortest lifespans for U.S. money because $1 bills are very ubiquitous. Um, So think about that. Less than six years in 2017 is how long you could expect a $1 bill to really exist for. Wow. So I guess we really have no chance of getting those uh, dollar bills from that uh, National Treasure marketing campaign, huh? Unless we go on eBay or something. Yeah. Unless someone thought they were really cool and important and one day going to be a collector's item, I doubt they still exist, which is very sad for us. Um, (laughs) so something interesting that I found that is honestly, um, relevant to several denominations of, of U.S. currency, but I'll bring it up here, is that to the left of, in this case, George Washington on the $1 bill, there's a letter, like an alphabetical letter in a circle. Um, you would notice this or recognize it immediately if you pulled out one of those bills and were looking at it, but again, you only have a five, I'm sorry. Um, it turns out that the letter corresponds to which of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks actually distributed the bill to begin with. And the circular part surrounding the letter actually spells out the city that that Federal Reserve Bank is located in. So in my wallet right now, for instance, let me look, um, I have two $1 bills here, and it looks like one of them is from Chicago. And the other one is from one of my favorite places, San Francisco. What? Yeah, isn't that cool? That's so cool. Um, another last kind of overarching point that, again, applies to many, denom- like, I think pretty much all Federal Reserve notes, is what the paper is made out of, okay? It's not your normal paper. It's not something you're going to, like, for many reasons, it's not something you're going to put in your printer and print on. Um, but <laughs> Bad. Com- <laughs> don't do that. Compositionally, it is comprised of one quarter linen and three quarters cotton. Yeah, so it's like kind of more like your shirt. 
I mean, I get it. No, yeah. it it doesn't feel that different from paper. I mean, but think about it. The more it's worn out, you've probably felt really worn out bills before, and they're almost fabric-y feeling. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. They, also, they also have red and blue security fibers in them. So if you look at them really closely, you'll see little flecks of color. That I did know. It's part of that. One of the many try to prevent counterfeiting tactics in use. Indeed, indeed. So anyway, finally on the $1 bill. There are a couple things here that I thought National Treasure fans would specifically be interested in knowing. And so this is really good to jump back to the back of the bill. We spent a lot of time talking about GW and the front. So let's hop to the back. Um, As I said at the front, the components of the United States seal, the great seal of the United States, I think in general are very National Treasure. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, from the get-go, on the one side, we have the all-seeing eye over the unfinished pyramid. What does it actually say? Has everyone, anyone ever taken a time to look at it? It says, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm pretty sure it's Latin, Anuit Septus, which means like he, she, or providence has favored our undertakings. That's what that means. And so I like to think of that in the context of Ben stealing the declaration. What? That is <laughs> insane. I love that reading. I mean, because think about it. I think in the context of when the Great Seal was created, um, it was more in terms of like the United States becoming its own country and everything it had to do, even if it was considered bad or, I guess, treasonous to do so. Um, we We prevailed and Providence has favored our undertakings, right? So yeah, this is kind of doing what we talk about as like a justification of a morally questionable act, which is of course very National Treasure-esque. Also, as part of the all-seeing eye component of the Great Seal, um, we have the year of the U.S. Declaration of Independence noted in Roman numerals at the bottom of the pyramid. I don't Hmm. know if anyone has seen that before, Um, but you know, just really emphasizing that document that we find so important in this franchise um, <laughs> so of course however this is only one component i would even argue the lesser known component of the great seal what mm-hmm. people really think of when they think of the great seal it shows up to the on the right side of the u.s one dollar bill on the back is the eagle clutching olive branches and arrows yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is obviously uh, very reminiscent of National Treasure 2, where the scroll replaces the arrows as the secret book symbol. Um, but here's another banner that I think people probably are unfamiliar with. The eagle is holding in its, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's in its uh, beak, sort of a banner that reads E Pluribus Unum. Uh, this also, I'm pretty sure, appears on the penny. Um, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> and and e pluribus unum means out of many one. Um, and I think we can connect this to national treasure, um, specifically in the second film, when Ben is talking about how under Lincoln we became one nation. Dude! <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that's also why it's on the penny, but... <laughs> I mean, it probably is, but like, I never would have thought about that. Yeah, so we got a lot of national treasure here in the $1 bill, even beyond its appearances in the film. So isn't that cool, Em? 
That is pretty darn cool. I'm so glad you agree. So are you ready to move on to the $100 bill? I'm not ready for my quiz portion, but I am ready to hear about it. Amazing. Well, we're kind of doing the sandwich, you know, the $1, the 100 two ends of the spectrum, most important to national treasure here. Um, the context in national treasure, do you remember why the 100 is important? Ian, who, uh, Ian gave it to the kid who was translating the uh, declaration uh, cipher for for Riley in order to get the kid to give him the last couple letters that he hadn't had a chance to give Riley. That is correct. That is actually Boom. the one. That is the instance that I thought you would forget. Uh, there's a bigger instance that I thought you would remember, <laughs> which is that when Ben uses the magnifying glass to riddle out the timely shadow clue, also in National Treasure, he has to look at the clock shown on the Independence Hall tower on the back of the $100 bill. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, so we already spent ample time back in all the way back in episode two or hunt for facts episode breaking down ben's interpretation of this clue um we talked about what what about it is true what's not what's inspired by truth um it was actually really fascinating so highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode two if you haven't listened to that before but in summary I do want to just give the gist here so folks aren't totally flying blind. Yes, Independence Hall does appear on the $100 bill. No, the time is not 2.22 or 3.22, which is relevant to the time in the film. Uh, that time is not the time that shows up on the clock on the bill. Uh, though many have argued that it looks like 2.22. It's just not what the Bureau of Engraving and Printing says that it read. Um, mm -hmm. That picture of Independence Hall was not etched by Benjamin Franklin's friend as our Ben, Ben Gates, purp <laughs> purports that it was. However, we did uncover that Ben Franklin's friend did etch a different image of Independence Hall that appears on, spoiler alert, the $2 bill, but that picture does not include a clock. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if you want more of all that, go back to episode two. In the meantime, Emily... Quiz time. Who's on the $100 bill? Think really hard about National Treasure and this should be obvious. I mean, I feel like we just said Ben Franklin's name a lot. Is it Ben Franklin? It is. It is <gasps> indeed. Remember, the Philadelphia clues in the first film were very self-consistent with Ben Franklin. It was pretty impressive. That's true. Um, so Ben Franklin is on the front. Now, the back actually has changed over time. Um, from 1914, remember that's when Federal Reserve notes started. From 1914 mm -hmm. to 1928, the back had um, figures representing labor, plenty, America, peace, and commerce. So hmm. this is actually reminding me a little bit of our visit to the Library of Congress, where there were so many like sim like people painted, like, yeah, yeah, not real people, but like symbolic people painted on the walls to represent different things, you know yeah oh i love that yeah so it's like a definitely a time period thing um and then it was it wasn't actually until 1929 that independence hall was put on the back we've had various versions of independence hall like different etchings uh put on the back and um 
here's a quick fun fact. The $100 bill is the only um, U.S. bill today that has a building on it that is not located in Washington, D.C. Ooh, but mm. Philly represent. Yeah, it's a little nod to our history or to national treasure, whatever you prefer. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> speaking of history, um, just like the $1 denomination, the year 1862 really kick-started the $100 currency form, but in this case, it was a, once again, a United States note or a legal tender note, two names for the same thing. Um, something that I think is funny <laughs> is that when it first started being printed, different versions of the $100 United States note were printed by accident, and the different versions kind of resulted in different, um, I guess, obligations, you could say, in terms of what the bill meant in terms of its value versus what you were, yeah, big problem. That feels like something you would fact check, like not fact check, but you would like extra be sure to like triple check before it went into circulation. 100%. But again, if people cared about this, then we probably wouldn't have like 84,000 types of notes at different points in our history, you know? (laughs) So um, it turns out that George Washington, Abe Lincoln, and actually many others graced the front of the $100 bill before the creation of today's Federal Reserve note in 1914, which is, of course, when Ben Franklin became the poster child. Um, And since July of 1969, the $100 bill is the largest denomination that is printed and circulated. Recall that before then, not only did we have those um, like things like the $10,000 and whatever, there were actually denominations of $500, $1,000, $5,000, and $10,000. They were all retired um, in 1969. Wow. And again, just for funsies, it turns out that, get this, 1.25 trillion with a TR, trillion dollars worth of these $100 bills were in circulation in 2017. Their estimated lifespan is 15 years. I would almost expect that to be a little higher. Me too, actually. I guess people still use paper currency more than we think they do. Uh, I just didn't think $100 bills were like frequently used. I mean... I feel like you and I are not the demographic of people that would have $100 bills in our wallets all the time anyway. (laughs) Very accurate. So like probably we probably don't have the best perspective here. If you are someone that frequently has $100 (laughs) bills in your wallet, please feel free to weigh in on Twitter. (laughs) Anyway, um, here's my national treasure fans would be interested in knowing fact. The current version of the $100 bill, in case this podcast lives in perpetuity, we are recording this in 2022. So we are talking about the version that started printing in 2013. On the back, it has um, the brown quill that was used to sign the Declaration of Independence. It has faint phrases from the Declaration itself written on it. It also has a bell in like an inkwell symbol that sort of appears and disappears depending on the angle you're looking at. It's like one of those security features. 
So there's lots of national treasure relevance to the $100 bill, again, beyond what we see in the movie. But what I like about this is everything on the bill almost feels like it's a nod to national treasure <laughs> because how how yeah. is how is the you know $100 bill used in the movie in Philly and so what's all on this the declaration yeah. and the liberty bell uh, you know what I mean like and you know what this bill like we said started printing in 2013 substantially after the franchise came out so I'm gonna say this is how conspiracy theories start but I'm gonna say that all those changes were just a direct nod to and appreciation for our beloved films. <laughs> I don't think that's correct, but I like that theory. So let's go with it. <laughs> All right. So those are the two denominations that are directly relevant to national treasure. But as Emily knows so well, I can national treasure anything. I mean, it's a little scary. Thank you. <laughs> but true. I take that as a compliment. So I thought it would be fun to quickly kind of make this like our equivalent of our traditional speed round where we're going to go through the remainder of denominations of, of U.S. paper currency. We're just going to pull out some national treasure relevant points that you might be interested in knowing. Are you ready, Emily? Let's do it. Okay. What's the first bill that comes to mind after the $1 bill, Emily? Two dollars. So really hoping you would say five so I can make fun of you, but it is the two dollar bill. As no, I used to collect these. Oh, really? Yeah, like because they're not really used very much. Like I used to think it was like a really big deal to have one. <laughs> That's what a lot of people think. Well, here's some fun facts for you. Um, as discussed in episode two that we referenced before, the reverse side of the $2 bill features a painting called Declaration of Independence by John Trumbull. This painting depicts the signing of the declaration in the assembly room at Independence Hall. And according to the Federal Reserve, here's something interesting that you probably don't know. The original painting painted by John Trumbull depicts 47 men in the signing, but you know, these bills, kind of small, didn't have a lot of space. So only 42 of the men actually appear on the bill. <laughs> like the other ones like just got cut off, kind of? They didn't make the cut, literally. What? Yes. <laughs> so, Emily, you collected these in the past. Who's on the front? I don't know. The answer is Thomas Jefferson. We talked about this on the National Treasure Hunt tour. Ah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> it'll surprise no one on that was on that tour that i don't remember that either so thomas jefferson is indeed on the front he of course played an important albeit invisible role in the subject of one of our earlier episodes this season a gates family mystery series that's the national treasure prequel book series Book number three uncharted which substantially references his involvement in the creation of the Declaration of Independence. Recall he is the one that had uh, created a cipher for Lewis and Clark in that book, and he thought that he had created a really tough and difficult cipher to crack, and it turns out that three 12-year-olds, or however old they were, were able to figure it out instead. So good job, Thomas Jefferson. Well done, sir. <laughs> so here's another cool national treasure point for you, Em. There are actually a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the $2 bill. And this has a lot to do with something that you just said, which is the fact that they're perceived as pretty rare. 
So um, these conspiracy theories include, number one, people thinking they're fake money. Oh. And number two, um, that they were used for bribery by politicians who were trying to bribe people for votes. Hmm. And even though we pretty much never see them, there were 2.4 billion, with a B, dollars worth of them circulating in 2017. Where are they all? I suspect they're mostly like in people's sock drawers because, again, they think they're worth something. That's true. I probably have at least three. Oh, my God. You're, you're clearly hoarding. Call the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> Call the FBI. <laughs> they could probably recycle them by now. <laughs> okay. What comes after the $2 bill, M? Five. That is correct. So... The obvious connection here has a lot to do with whose face appears on that bill. That is Emily. Is it Ben Franklin again? It is not. It is Abraham Lincoln. All right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is a flashback to National Treasure 2. Abe Lincoln is on the front. I'm guessing that makes you even less likely to know what's on the back? Question mark? Oh, zero idea. <laughs> okay. Can you take a guess given that you now know Lincoln's on the front? Ford Theater, his assassination. Wow, that's dark. Um, <laughs> that is very wrong. You made me guess. <laughs> the back is the Lincoln Memorial. Oh, I love that. This is probably Emily's favorite location in the National Treasure movie because it yeah. is the scene of Ben and Riley's big ethical conversation about whether they can or should steal the Declaration of Independence. That lovely location is on the back now the newest slash most current version of the five has the great seal of the united states in the background of lincoln's portrait and here's a fun fact christopher columbus and the pilgrims were actually on the reverse of the initial 1914 federal reserve note version Hmm. And I bring this up because we could end up seeing this time period be relevant to the National Treasure Disney Plus series, the mm. Edge of History series, because we know that they're going into pre-Columbian Native American history through Central and South America. So that could be relevant here. Wow. Keep an eye out. I love it. <laughs> All right, Em. We did the five. What's next? Ten, 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 ten. Only one of them, but yes, it is the 10. So, Emily, who's on the 10? Alexander Hamilton. Yes, that is correct. Who was on it before Hamilton? No idea. That would be Andrew Jackson. Do you know what's on the back? <laughs> You're going to ask me if I knew who Andrew Jackson was. Do you know who Andrew Jackson was? <laughs> Wasn't he a vice president? No, he was an actual president. He was the seventh president of the United <laughs> okay. States. Okay, so do you know what's on the back? No. Think Hamilton. If you say the Federalist Papers, I will virtually slap you. The first national bank? Um... You're close. Yeah, it's the U.S. Treasury Building. 
Okay. Seems kind of random and weird compared to the gravitas of some of the other buildings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like one of the things that he was known for. Yeah, but... there's at least some self-consistency there. The The existing National Treasure connection is almost what I would call a National Treasure Hunt connection. Um, <laughs> since I would say average viewers of National Treasure are not aware of this man, John Trumbull, we've referenced multiple times now, and mm-hmm. his relevance to National Treasure. Um, again, being the friend of Ben Franklin who painted Declaration of Independence scenes, yada, 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 $2 bill, blah, blah, blah. But the, the fun fact, the National Treasure connection here, the portrait on the $10 bill is actually a painting of Alexander Hamilton done by John Trumbull. What? In 1805. And the actual painting belongs to the portrait collection of New York City Hall. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's that was a fun. That's going to be one of my probably top facts of this episode. Um, This guy, John Trumbull, who knew he was going to be so critical to National Treasure Hunt lore. Um, What a guy. What a guy. We got (laughs) to love him. Um, Other than that. Other fun facts, uh, National Treasure-esque related to the $10 bill. There's a lot of name dropping here. So um, there is an allegorical representation of Pocahontas. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. But a representation of Pocahontas um, on the 1869 United States note version of the 10 and i bring that up here because i'd really like to see pocahontas in that era incorporated in national treasure 3 and Mm -hmm. she's obviously very relevant to that prequel book series book one changing tides another name drop here the 1878 silver certificate ten dollar bill that version had robert morris on it does that name ring a bell for you emily no he was a declaration of independence signer from your home state of pennsylvania and he also signed the articles of confederation and the constitution so he's one of those guys that does all three what a guy what a guy and in 1901 the united states note had lewis and clark oh on the 10 which is another national treasure three idea of ours and they are of course invisible subjects of National Treasures prequel book series number three, Uncharted, once again. I feel like that's a lot of changing of, like, who is on the front of that bill. You are so lucky. All of you listening are so lucky I didn't go into the, like, actual delineated history of every change of these bills because we would be here for 17 hours. They've changed so much. (laughs) Oh. Okay. We're almost there. What's after 10? 20. 20 indeed. Who's on the 20M? Uh, <laughs> You're screwed for this one. <laughs> Lyndon B. Johnson. Andrew Jackson again. Why does he get another one? <laughs> well, he was replaced by Hamilton on the other one. But did this happen after that? I mean, I don't know exactly when, but Andrew Jackson was not the only one ever to grace the $20 bill. He is the current one. But the original was Grover Cleveland. Do you know what's on the back? I don't really have a good connection to hint you with. Just think like significant Washington, D.C. structures, I guess. The White House? You are correct! 
So interestingly, recent versions of the $20 bill, we actually see the north side of the White House, but earlier versions have the south side. Oh. Yeah. So the obvious connection to National Treasure here is the White House. The lawn of the White House, as seen in National Treasure 2, can also be seen on the 1928 to 1990 and 1990 to 1998 versions. That is the south side of the White House. And if you squint really hard, maybe you can see Phil Dunphy on there. We all um, would be better off if that were true. Um, In 1861, the Civil War era demand notes that we talked about earlier um, had the goddess of liberty on the $20 bill. This was, of course, the Goddess of Liberty being the inspiration for the Statue of Liberty, which is very important to National Treasure, too. And in 1865, the National Bank note has, once again, Pocahontas. However, instead of an allegorical representation, we have her marriage to John Rolfe. All right, Em, we have one more. Do you know what it is? It's the 50. It is the 50. Emily, who is on the $50 bill? Can I get a hint? Has he been on another bill? Not that we've talked about today. Is he a... Pre- yeah, they're all presidents. Uh, I know we've talked about Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton here today. <laughs> <laughs> Who are definitively not presidents as much as is you Is this think person they are. a president? Yes. I'll give you one more hint. We mention him super briefly on the National Treasure Hunt tour. Van Buren? We talked about Van Buren on the tour. Where was I? <laughs> I don't think so. No, on the $50 bill is Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, yeah. Wait, he was a president? Yes. Oh. I thought he was just the, the general in the, the he war. He was also a military figure. <laughs> Given that, okay, you know, this hint is not going to have to do with him. It's going to have to do with the tour. I hope you remember where on the tour we mentioned him. That is your hint for what is on the back of 50. (laughs) Aubrey. (laughs) Can I have a different hint? That's literal. Okay, fine. Another DC substantial important building. The Library of Congress. No, it's the Capitol building. Oh, Okay. okay, so I'm clearly here re- referencing the fact that there's a large Ulysses S. Grant statue in front of the Capitol building by the reflecting pool. We pointed out on the tour, we talk about how it's the largest mounted horseback statue in D.C., etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that is a national treasure hunt connection, but there are some little national treasure connections here. Are you ready for them? Mm-hmm. I'm going to speed through them. 1870, the National Gold Banknote. This is the first time you're hearing this. This was basically issued in California and was redeemable for gold. This version of the 50 had, quote, vignettes of George Washington crossing the Delaware River and at Valley Forge. What? That was on the front. Now, of course, we know that Abigail's password to access the lab area at the National Archives was valley forge or valley frog yep as riley likes to say and the back of this particular note had a quote vignette of u.s gold coins interesting choice but okay 
Next up, we have 1874, the United States note version had uh, Benjamin Franklin, his portrait on the left. And yet again, we have an allegorical figure, this time of Lady Liberty on the right. Can I ask a quick question? Please Was do. this instead of the like center picture? In they the, had two. Yeah, I mean, in this okay. case, there were multiple. Yeah, the designs have changed. Okay, okay, gotcha. In 1891, the treasury or coin note, uh, again, that's the thing we haven't heard today, that was issued to purchase silver bullion from people in the silver mining sector. Of course. Uh, yes, naturally. This version featured William H. Seward's portrait. This is a deep cut because you're going to have to wait for our National Treasure Hunt book to come out to hear how we want that in particular to be relevant to National Treasure 3. Mic drop. Mic drop. I like I think that was an unintentional but perfect place to end this conversation on the denominations and before we wrap up today, I have one last question for us to ponder in real time here on the Pod M and that question actually has to do with how National Treasure uses money in its stories. We've talked about it multiple times today. National Treasure loves its currency clues, but it only uses paper currency. Why do we think National Treasure focused on paper currency and not coins? And I find this particularly interesting because, in my mind anyway, stereotypical treasures in pop culture you're not thinking of paper money. You're thinking of coins, like a treasure chest full of gold coins or something like that, right? So like stereotypical treasure is very coin-based. Why, why paper currency for national treasure? I want, I want my answer to be like artistic in some way. And I, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I really, I like the idea of it potentially being that even though we've talked about on this episode, right, how paper currency has gone through many different versions over mm -hmm. the years, um, and even though we now know that it's, like, recycled and stuff when it becomes unusable anymore, the, the staying power, there, there is some kind of staying power to this not piece of paper, right, linen mm -hmm. and cotton, um, that is... I think more than what we would expect of a typical piece of paper, right? Like if you compare it to something like the declaration of independence in the film, right? Like the declaration of independence, obviously we've talked about on the podcast before how that was treated horribly, right? Like in the beginning of its lifetime, but now it's like super well uh, protected and goes through all this preservation work. And so that's why, the declaration has lasted for as long as it had, even though it's just a piece of parchment. But we don't really treat money or I guess bills with that same kind of reverence. I mean, there's some amount, right? We know that we can't just burn them <laughs> or cut them in half, but um, you know, we put them in our, our pockets and stuff like that. Even in, even in the movie, right? Like Patrick crumples up that $1 bill in the, in the second film and throws it into the water uh, in Cibola. So I think that it's kind of a, a testament to the staying power of this paper currency 
though. Like there's something about it, even though we don't treat it the same way that we treat the Declaration of Independence, it, it still lasts for like six to 15 years, right? As we, as we talked about on this episode. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's something that's, that can be said about the way that the the clues, right, in National Treasure, at least, or at least the, the one clue with Independence Hall, you know, stayed, right, with that, with that uh, bill that they used. I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a stretch, but. <laughs> no, I like the symbolism there. I think there, you can definitely go the symbolism route. I think you could also go a semi-logical or practical route in terms of the timing of this movie, you know, from the, from just that perspective, um, I feel like using paper currency makes us a much more modern treasure hunt, right? Because mm. if you're using, I don't know, I think of, when I think of coins and treasure movies, I would be so tempted to think of the coins as the treasure, you know, and, and it wouldn't be, I feel like as easy to use them in the actual hunt because of some preconceived notions like that. That being said, you certainly could, and no one would knock them. You couldn't do the same things, right? That crumpled up piece of paper wouldn't float down. Like a, a, a coin wouldn't float in the way that, that the paper money did. Um, and I, I am sure that that child would have been sure, maybe fascinated by uh, the one dollar coins that exist, but what have you. <laughs> um, I do not think. Let me just go on the record by saying I do not think this was an intentional choice hmm. by the creators. But knowing what we know from this episode, I think I personally like to think of some symbolism here now with Benjamin Franklin. And how important he is to the National Treasure universe and indeed to U.S. history. Knowing that he was now like the first or one of the first ones in the, the colonies to write about the importance of paper currency mm-hmm. and clearly how much thought and time and effort he put into printing currency, what with that, you know, leaf impressions for uh, anti-counterfeiting, etc. I personally will now like to think that the paper currency is an additional nod to that lore that inspires national treasure so much, especially in the first movie. I like that a lot. So that's another, you know, rumor that we can spread here. Again, I do not think that had anything to do with anything. In fact, in fact, we know that the idea of U.S. currency, and I suppose you could say this about coins or dollars, you know, Charles Seegers and Oren Aviv explained to us the importance and the concept from their perspective of having clues in people's pockets and you were mm-hmm. just having no idea that you had a clue in your pocket the whole time. Um, so I don't think it was as deep as we just tried to make it, but that's why we that's why we know a lot about these films to make those deep connections right i mean we we make things deep that might not have been intended to all the time on this podcast that is literally the point that is the point absolutely and you know what if you liked this episode if you learned something and if you want to see us do it again about coins let us know because we are happy to oblige Uh, There was too much to talk about in terms of paper currency today that we couldn't get to the coins, but we'd love to do that if that would be of interest. So you should just let us know. 
Yes, and you can let us know by contacting us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And definitely make sure you're subscribed because we are quickly approaching the end of season five of our show. And as you know, our later episodes are always crowd pleasers. Mm-hmm. Next time on the show, it is our penultimate season five episode in which we will be breaking down National Treasure 2's Cibola. What does it contain? What are the implications? And how well does that portrayal match up with what legend actually says Cibola looks like? All that and more on our next episode. So until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.